Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of the podcast. Today our guest is Anne Sleeper. She's a phenomenal RMT and teaches a lot of continuing education courses. She has been in the business for a really long time, so I was really lucky to sit down with her and pick her brain on the vast amount of knowledge she has accrued over the years. There were some hiccups with the recording, so please excuse any odd cuts throughout, but I hope you can sit back, enjoy the conversation, and hopefully you can learn something. Hello, Anne. Hi, Dean. How are you doing? I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Thank you so much for, again, taking the time to be on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. Everybody likes to talk about themselves. <laughs> Especially you, right? Especially me. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we just jump right into you talking about yourself. All right. What do you do and how long have you been doing what you do? I'm a registered massage therapist and I've been doing it since 1981. 1981. Mm -hmm. So a little while. A little while. Been around for than most of the people in the profession yeah. nowadays, hey? It, it turns out that if you keep getting up every day, uh, eventually you get there. So how did you get into this profession such a long time ago? Uh, well, um, it's a similar situation to a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. I had uh, back and neck problems. I started out seeing a chiropractor and I heard about massage therapy, went to see a massage therapist. And she was able to really help me whenever I got into trouble. So, you know, it was a, at the right time of my life to be looking for some new kind of profession to be in. And so that's what I did. Right. So you were, what were you pursuing before that? Uh, a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. Yeah. General uh, studies. Yeah. Well, yeah, going to university, dropping out of university, traveling, working at all kinds of different jobs. Right. And I was ready to find a, you know, a profession to stick with. Okay. So this was your your kind of key to settle down with? I think so, yeah. yes. So what um, what got you into the neck and back pain? Was there a specific injury? Was there anything that... Uh, no, I think it was, uh, I realize now, mm. um, more uh, in emotional holding patterns that okay. I got into. Uh, I almost died when I was a baby. It was fairly, very traumatic. Uh, of course, at the time, I didn't realize that that had any influence whatsoever. So it's been interesting for me to learn about the effect that trauma has, especially babyhood or childhood trauma, has mm. on the way you cope, how your nervous system develops, and how it develops coping mechanisms. Mm. And I think my coping mechanism was to basically curl up in a fetal ball in my posture, right. you know, very subtly, but mm. it was there. And so uh, that's kind of what eventually caught up with me in my mid to late 20s. Right. And at that time in your mid to late 20s, did you have any suspicion that that would be a contributing factor to your pain? Or was it just, oh, I'm just achy in my back and neck for some reason? Yeah, it, it was just something that happened. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned that you had been seeing a Cairo before, mm -hmm. but it was an RMT that really helped you? Uh, they both had their place. Yeah. Right. Did mm -hmm. you find that... If they both had their place, why did you feel that you gravitated more towards RMT as opposed to, say, chiropractic? Uh, I used both, actually. And mm -hmm. actually, uh, in the 80s, more chiropractic uh, because, uh, like many people, I found that it wasn't so much the technique uh, uh, that helped me as the particular practitioner and whether they had uh, some way of approaching the body that was actually useful for me. Right, so it, everyone's that way. Right, so it was the person that matched up well. Could yes, have been, could yeah. Could have been anyone. Uh, any well, yes, it could have been. I think. Right. Yeah, and when I discovered osteopathy, uh, I didn't look back. That was really what worked for me best of all. Right. Can you mm -hmm. tell me a bit more about that? Then? 
Well, when I uh, graduated, uh, massage and the most simple form of remedial exercise you can possibly imagine was mm-hmm. what we were trained in, right. <laughs> and nothing more. Yeah. Uh, but shortly uh, after I got a massage therapy school, mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of different techniques came into the profession, uh, physical therapy techniques like joint mobilization, mm-hmm. uh, trigger points, uh, and osteopathic techniques like muscle energy technique, cranial sacral technique, and myofascial release followed along a little bit later. So that was kind of the exciting change going on in those days, mm-hmm. uh, was to branch out into those techniques. Uh, and they really worked well for me, mm-hmm. personally, uh, for my own pain situation, and I really enjoyed doing them, so that is the direction I went. Right. So why did you uh, go with becoming an RMT as opposed to becoming a chiropractor then? I didn't really want to be a chiropractor. I wasn't really interested in popping spines, which Mm -hmm. is mostly what they did in those days. Uh, They're branching out now like everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but at that time, the techniques or the sort of treatment style didn't click for you? Well, it didn't uh, click as something I wanted to do myself. Yeah. Yeah. And so... when you decided, okay, I'm going to go to school to become an RMT, maybe this fits the bill for me a bit more, did you find that as you got into practice, it still clicked or you felt, oh, I'm in the right spot? Or did you feel that it took some time before you realized how you wanted to treat or how you wanted to run your practice in the profession? Oh, it certainly took time. I think mm-hmm. it does for everyone. You know, you just show up at the clinic on the first day and you're scared to death and you just kind of <laughs> do whatever it is you can think to do right. and then just start adding experience uh, into your brain, into your hands, mm-hmm. uh, and gradually go from there. I think if it had stayed just Swedish massage, I might have gotten bored and drifted away. Mm. Uh, I know I had a couple of friends who did. Right. Uh, but because there was so much new information and new techniques coming into the profession, it was very stimulating. Uh, Much of it is, as it is now, as we move from the paradigm that that uh, change that happened when I first became a massage therapist, now we're back into a new uh, paradigm shift into pain science, and it's equally as exciting. Right. Uh, it's just really fantastic. Yeah, and you yeah. found that, that almost transition period to be exciting and draw you into the, the profession more? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It was an exciting time then, and we're in another one now. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. So what, since, since we're kind of talking about the two transitionary periods, that when you first started practicing, how does that differ from today as far as building your practice or what patients expect when they come in or how you treat? Was it, is there quite a bit of a difference, or do you find that it's just small, minor things that have changed? Uh, oh, a huge difference. Mm. There were only 125 RMTs in the province of British Columbia when I came out of school. Wow, yeah. Uh, we were not called registered massage therapists. We were registered masseuse and registered mm. masseur. We got rid of that as soon as we could. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, there was no research whatsoever on massage. Uh, and physical therapists had done massage uh, themselves up until about World War II when the Uh, electrical modalities and ultrasound were invented Mm -hmm. and so for them that was the shiny new technique and they did not respect massage because it was the old thing that they'd left behind right and so they did not approve of what we did doctors often didn't either because they didn't really know what it was for in a therapeutic 
you know, from a therapeutic context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were quite dependent on doctor referrals at that time because uh, a certain amount of massage therapy was covered on the medical plan. What was the transitionary period from before there's any research to the first few inklings of research or the first little bit of, hey, this is actually doing something or we have some ground of assessment or treatment that has been proven to be helpful for certain things? Well, the first research uh, that I'm aware of was by a researcher in the United States, Mm. and she found that uh, massage therapy was useful for depression Mm. and uh, those anxiety. And I don't think that there's any slam dunk uh, research about um, massage therapy that can tell us really that much more at this point. Right. Uh, I think the big difference uh, is that you said we were kind of spiraling it back around to we don't really know what it is. But yeah. uh, back in those days, I think the difference is that we thought it was we were working with um, lengthening tissue mechanically. Mm. Uh, and if certainly the nervous system was thought about, and we knew that we were working through the nervous system, but I think it's more clearly understood now uh, that it is primarily the nervous system that is doing the heavy lifting right. uh, rather than us with our pushing and our pulling and so on. Yeah. And, um, but even that's uh, a change that's still in process. We still don't know that much about how, whether we are in fact pushing and pulling mm-hmm. uh, tissue to some extent. Uh, I was listening to a, a video cast by uh, Greg Lehman, who's uh-huh. one of my heroes in pain science, and uh, he was talking about the myofascial release uh, theory that we might be sliding layers of tissue on each other, mm-hmm. and that's one that the myofascial release people are talking about now, that pain science people often kind of poo-poo. But one right. of the things I like about Greg is that he's uh, willing to consider everything, and he's not... Uh, He's not really kind of in the club of, of pain science club of, you know, we all agree and, you know, everything we don't agree on isn't right. And so right. On. he will look at anything. And so what he said is that maybe, maybe you are sliding layers on mm. each other. Layers have to slide when you move mm. or you wouldn't be moving. <laughs> Whether we can do it manually, we just don't know yet. Right. It hasn't been studied and there isn't any way apparently yet to uh, get in there with a camera and see whether it's and, really happening or not. Yeah. And so that's the kind of approach that I like, mm. uh, because even though in pain science they say, well, it's also uncertain, but there's a lot of people that really do have a lot of certainty. They think that they've, it's all been figured out yet. Right. No. Yeah. And we can be certain about what works and what doesn't, and that isn't actually true. Not so true, yeah. No. The thing is that everybody likes to be right, you know? Mm. Like when yeah. the biomechanical <laughs> model came in, uh, oh, it was so much fun being right. Yeah. You know, all those people doing regular old Swedish massage, they weren't right. We were right. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, it was great. So now people get to have that same thrill, right? The right. thrill of being right. Yeah. A- and one of the things that I really like about pain science is that it's, at its best, mm-hmm. it's really trying to say, hey, wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. Stay humble. Stay humble. Stay humble. Right. It's all bigger than we can really understand. Yeah. But we have some signposts, and let's follow those signposts, and then uh-huh. we'll see other signposts, yeah. and so on and so on. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting that one of, if not the first, beneficial research articles on massage therapy was depression, mm. and we're kind of coming around to that area again where it's like, hmm, maybe it's a bit more, maybe there's a lot more factors than just the biomechanics. Maybe there's a lot more psychological, nervous system-based things that makes up makes us look at treatment a little differently because i think that's a big thing that 
um, even even though what we've done previously works with a different knowledge foundation, we can slightly modify our technique. So if we think that we're going in and breaking up scar tissue or physically making adhesions move better or whatever visualization you have in your mind, that makes you approach the body differently than if you think, hey, I'm just trying to send a message to the nervous system to incite a change. So do you think that the techniques will shift a little bit over the next few years or will come up with new ideas or try to apply them differently? Or have you been seeing that happen? Uh, yeah, I think all of the above. Mm. Uh, I think the techniques that we are using now, we can uh, often just apply uh, new explanatory models to just, you mm. know, different ideas about why they're working. And that will change the way our hands move. It always does. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> there are some really interesting new techniques coming along. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, one of the things that I think is pretty important is that uh, with the old techniques, they still have value. Uh, and they can still be very effective. One of the things that I get a bit concerned about is when people say we need to change our curriculum and get rid of all the old techniques and only have the new ones. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the thing is, if you look at the old techniques, like myofascial release, uh, muscle energy technique, um, craniosacral technique, uh, trigger points, all those ones, uh, they are good pain science techniques in that you're basically stretching the skin, you're applying slow pressures, you're applying uh, slow stretches, and that's what the new techniques are doing too, mm. right? right? So it's all really doing the same thing in different ways. So each one of them provides a different kind of input to the system, and why would you ban some of those inputs? Right, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, so I would rather see the old techniques, uh, rather than being discarded, just being kind of revamped uh, new ideas about why they work, new ideas about how to use them, mm -hmm. uh, and then just kind of see what happens, right? Let's yeah. let's get the new techniques and the old techniques uh, up against each other and see what they can do. Yeah, right? for sure. Yeah, so yeah. that's kind of how I'd like to see it. Whether that happens or not, I c couldn't say. <laughs> you don't have a crystal ball? No see. crystal balls here. Yeah. So uh, I like that you brought up the curriculum because you do a lot of teaching yourself mm -hmm. and you do continuing uh, education courses for specific techniques, right? Um, MET, some osteopathic techniques, mm -hmm. things along those mm -hmm. natures, and then also treating the limbs. Is that correct? Uh, with that, again, it's kind of a grab bag of, of techniques. Of techniques, yeah. yeah. So how, with this new knowledge or this new transitionary period, have you changed the way that you're teaching or how has that thrown students for a loop or even yourself for making the curriculum or imparting this knowledge to people? How has that changed? Oh, it has changed. And this new information throws everybody for a loop mm. uh, for a while, for forever maybe. <laughs> uh, and and so uh, I have been uh, following pain science for about uh, five years or so. Mm -hmm. uh, I had rather bad chronic pain myself in the years before that. Mm. So I was approaching it uh, when I found out about it, both as a person with chronic pain as, and as a teacher. So uh, that made me stick with it even when I wanted to uh, stomp away angrily, which mm -hmm. everybody gets to that <laughs> point when they're reading this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I could just kept coming back uh, to it. And so uh, when I first brought it up in my uh, continuing ed classes, 
basically I would be explaining what pain science is in the briefest possible way and then telling mm-hmm. people how to find more information without getting completely annoyed. Right. <laughs> 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 because there are some people in some places where you can go and get the information in a much more accessible and uh, less ideological way than mm. others, right? Right. So I started with that, and now every time I teach, I bring in more and more and more and more. And in some of my classes, uh, it fits better than in others. Uh, muscle energy technique has a biomechanical model that you use for assessment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you throw that out, then you can't really do it in the way that it was developed. So whether whether or not uh, it's an accurate uh, model, and it probably isn't entirely, even if it is somewhat, uh, it, if you take it away, then all you really have is doing contract relax on a painful spot. Mm. And that has been suggested by pain science about how you use muscle energy technique, because it's basically contract relax, right? Right. Uh, and they say you will get a day, a couple hours or a couple of days pain relief, and that'll be it. Mm. But with the whole muscle energy system, uh, I find that people often get quite a bit more relief than that. So I'm a little bit reluctant to just walk away from it. I think one of the things that's been suggested to me is that people who develop those techniques, they were very experienced and they kind of started picking up on patterns. Mm. Uh, It's kind of a pattern recognition system, these old biomechanical systems. And uh, people found that they were useful so frequently um, that they figured there was something there and they put a biomechanical explanation on it because that's how we thought in those days. Right. Uh, and even if those aren't exactly the correct explanations, there's still uh, something going on with those techniques and even with those assessment systems uh, that is needs to be looked at. Mm. And so because it's so effective and many people who take the trouble to learn it find it so effective, I'm just going to keep teaching it, and the future can take care of itself. (laughs) Right. (laughs) If it works, it works. Yeah, and, you know, I will probably only be teaching for another five years, and uh, after that, people can do whatever they want. (laughs) A lot can change in five years. You bet. Especially judging how things are going right now. Absolutely. Do you find that there's people who are taking the pain science stuff a bit too far, or maybe grabbing a bit of information and running with it and leaving everything behind? Do you think there's maybe some detriment or harm that can be done from, say, trying to leave everything behind and taking this pain science stuff and running with it? And well, I think we're at the point now where we don't quite know what to leave behind and what to uh, <laughs> what to take with us, and right. I think some people would disagree with me about that. But mm. just in terms of pain science education, I think it's got more to do with... Um, with the style that you have of teaching it. I've spent a lot of time uh, reading uh, discussion forums on pain science and have seen various ways that people talk about it. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I, for me and a lot of other people, the most effective uh, teaching style for pain science is not to go in there and say, this is wrong, that's wrong, this is wrong. You better learn more because you're wrong. Right. And I have seen that. Yeah, yeah. And then not too much information about where to go to get, you know, uh, more information about that. Just basically 
kind of a I'm right and you're wrong approach. Mm. People don't respond too well to that. Yeah. I mean, some people no matter take, what the information yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, we know that from other kinds of information. Yeah. So I think it's more a teaching style, a discussion style that's important rather than, you know, are we grabbing onto the wrong things and running with them? Because, of course, we are. Right. You know, yeah, of course, yeah. everyone does that. Knowledge changes all the time when we're always grabbing the wrong thing and running with it. And if we didn't do that, how would we learn, right? Right. So, right. it's you know, it kind of has to happen. Uh-huh. You know, make a mistake, figure it out, make a mistake, figure it out. That's how it works. Right, yeah. So the it's, it sounds like you kind of have your feet in both, both ends of the spectrum. You're not totally on one side or the other. Um, do you, when you were learning all this information, did you find that there was something missing? For example, if you were learning a very biomechanical form of treatment or assessment, did you ever think like, hmm, this doesn't, I don't feel like this encompasses everything or I feel like there's a missing piece? And do you feel like this new information was that missing piece or did it, did this new information kind of shatter what you had originally had in your mind? Well, I think people always knew that there were some people with certain kinds of chronic pain like fibromyalgia that biomechanical treatments didn't work all that well with. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody ever thought it was going to take care of everything. Or if we did, we did, you know, (laughs) it didn't stand up to real life. Right. Uh, And so one of the things I really like about pain science is how well it steps into those areas that biomechanical treatments didn't cover, uh, like ongoing uh, chronic pain. Uh, And there's some ongoing chronic pain that biomechanical work helps with. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody's had Mm -hmm. low back pain for a long time, you you see them, you do whatever you do, and then they say, wow, (laughs) I feel great, and they go away and they don't come back. Uh, So, you know, nervous systems don't always get completely flipped out by pain that lasts for a long time, but if it does, uh, then you know, some other things are needed. And I think that one of the great things about pain science is how it teaches people uh, what pain is and that it doesn't always mean you're going you're gonna to mess yourself up. Mm. And that was a, one of the most useful things for me as somebody with rather significant chronic pain right. is to bring the fear factor down. And that really was incredibly important. So I, you know, my feet are in two camps around... Uh, techniques, mm. uh, but in terms of the lessons we're learning about the nervous system and the, you know, the things we're realizing that we need to learn but still don't know about the immune system and the endocrine system and all that, uh, you know, that's just nothing but gold as far as I'm concerned. Right, yeah. yeah. So you mentioned earlier um, how trauma can sometimes play into pain or childhood experiences. Do you, do you find that that has a place in our profession to either be educated or to somehow be able to take action on that in your practice? And then also, just what uh, what do you find the most fascinating right now outside of our scope, but you feel should be incorporated? Well, the big thing with uh, that is that we are not allowed to counsel. Mm-hmm. And so we have to find ways of talking to patients about the uh, ways that their life and their psychology are affecting their pain without actually counseling. Mm-hmm. And there are uh, ways to do that, uh, but we need to learn them. Mm-hmm. And we need to learn how to draw the line, which is probably a little bit wavy at times, but uh, yeah. we do need to learn how to draw that line, and we need some clarity from our college and massage therapists about where that line is. Mm-hmm. And everybody's on the same page. 
uh, counseling is not in our scope of practice. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's for sure. You know, unless someday it becomes our scope of practice, which won't be for <laughs> quite a long time, I'm sure. Yeah. Then that's what we have to work with. Uh, the thing that's pretty interesting about uh, this is that we, even staying within our scope of practice, we have a lot of learning to do. Mm. It's much easier to learn some biomechanical treatments and just do them day after day after day than it is to learn how to talk to people, how to listen to them, how to talk to them about how their life uh, affects their um, their pain, uh, possibly mm. or possibly not, depending on why they have the pain, right? <laughs> yeah. It isn't it isn't all the same. Well, for that's everybody. a part of the skill, right? Because you need yeah. to be able to, to yeah. differentiate that. Yeah, we got like several lifetimes of work just absorbing into our practice what pain science has told us already, mm-hmm. uh, and so. Uh, you know, we don't have to wander too far out of scope to <laughs> have plenty to do. Right. You know, it's it's a big chunk of skills that mm-hmm. pain science is now demanding of us. A right. big chunk. Yeah. So with these skills, do you find if you could, anytime you do a CEC or you're helping students, if you could impart one crucial skill that they would really understand and be able to develop, do you think you'd be able to pick out one, maybe two, that you feel is maybe neglected but could have a huge effect on someone's practice and being able to help their patients? I think it's the same advice that has been given all along, which is pay attention. Hmm. Pay attention to the person in front of you. Pay attention to the body under your hands. Um, Don't let your uh, ideas of how uh, you should treat um, get in the way of learning uh, a new way or a more sensitive way of engaging with those persons, that person's tissues. Mm-hmm. And that's the same lesson that's been, we've been trying to learn forever. Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. absolutely wonderful. Yeah. That's a great way to articulate it. So do you think that your, the profession or your career as an RMT has ended up the way that you expected to, or do you feel like you have that sense of fulfillment that maybe, or maybe you didn't expect to have with the profession, but do you feel like you are in the right place and that you knew you wanted to pursue this for a long time. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, Well, perhaps just by chance, I am Mm. extraordinarily lucky that I became an RMT. Mm. I think it is an absolutely fabulous uh, profession with a lot of really interesting people in it. And uh, it's kept me interested all these years. And I'm really glad that this great big change has come along at the end of my career. It's really kept me uh, engaged and interested, uh, even though with chronic pain, of course, you tend to disassociate from life. It's mm-hmm. pretty unpleasant. I'm better now, of course, but I still have it. But it was just what I needed to bring me back to life after uh, having that severe chronic pain. Right. And it really helped. It did help. with one of the things that helped with the pain as well. Mm-hmm. So I just feel incredibly fortunate. That is yeah. amazing. Yeah, oh, so yeah. more than just a career, hey? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just... Uh, yeah, I think that not, it's not for everybody, of course, mm. but I think for a lot of us, we're just like pinching ourselves. How do we ever get so lucky? <laughs> That's the truth, <laughs> eh? So one last thing I want to ask is, do you have any specific incident in mind or patient that you've treated that you that you feel stands out the most for you? That If, if someone was would, were to say, oh, what was your biggest accomplishment or what what is the thing that you think back on and think like, that that's what made this career worth it. Could you pick that experience? 
whether it, it could be the chronic pain thing you just mentioned, it could be. Um, that's a tough one. One thing. Hmm. Maybe one and a half, two. One and a half or two <laughs> things. Uh, I think um, two things, uh, and a lot of people would agree they aren't compatible. Uh, but for me, uh, the first one is osteopathy. Uh, I'm not an osteopath, but I learned as much as I could, uh, given the fact that at the time there wasn't an osteopathic college as there is now, uh, and pain science. And, and those two, you know, pain science people don't have any respect for osteopathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, osteopaths uh, are just beginning to grapple with pain science. Uh, so they aren't uh, really compatible, and they make me... Uh, a, a little less acceptable as a pain science advocate because you're not supposed to uh, appreciate osteopathy anymore. Right. But uh, it was a real, uh, and I think still is, a real key to <clears throat> engaging with the nervous system, to being sensitive, to paying attention. That's what they're all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have biomechanical uh, models explaining their techniques, but uh, it's actually they're very pain science oriented in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and always have been and so that's my bit of uh, heresy for the day for the day <laughs> <laughs> people are going to be angry <laughs> uh, uh, I hope so <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, and uh, one of the things that all the biomechanical techniques need to learn from pain science and this is definitely true of osteopathy mm-hmm. uh, is uh, not to scare the patients mm-hmm. with your description of what's going on with them and that's another really valuable thing that pain science has come up with. First of all, n- discovering that things that we find on scans, like discs and so on, uh, are not necessarily causing pain, mm-hmm. like we thought. And also that the what we call dysfunctions in the biomechanical model, which is you know, muscles that are imbalanced or vertebrae that aren't going through their full range of motion or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you talk about them in a certain way, like, oh, you ever messed up, or this is really stuck, right. you know, wow. Yeah. How do you get through your day? You, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's it certainly, I realize now when I'm getting treatments that if if my therapist says that to me, I'm like cringing. Mm. Where before I was saying, yeah, I'm so messed up. Yeah, yeah I'm you're, cool. Yeah, you're I'm the most messed how? person, a messed up person you ever saw, right? Yeah. But I realize now that that was not doing me any good. Mm. I would really be scared every time I had pain that I'd my sacrum was stuck or something like that and uh, maybe it was or maybe it wasn't but being scared like that was not helpful <laughs> right yeah. so this is another huge thing that I think uh, no matter how you work in that you need to really keep in mind is is using language to help people understand that they're in, except for in certain uh, serious conditions that they're not uh, as uh, breakable as they think they are. Right, not as fragile. Yeah, and they don't need to be afraid every time they have pain mm-hmm. because it doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong. It might just, the nervous system might just be kind of sensitive and jumpy. So, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of pain science that I think everybody's got to uh, pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Do you think that language aspect influenced your battle with chronic pain quite a bit? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. It was a big uh, help. Uh, You know, I think what really helped me was osteopathy, Mm -hmm. pain science, and time. And time. And I wouldn't be able to say, you know, which of them was the most effective. I think they all played their part. They all played their part. Yeah. Okay. Well, Anne, thank you very much for taking the time again.
to have this chat. You're welcome. Thank you.